0: So, tonight's Dharma talk is on how mindfulness can serve us on the path of healing. And just to begin with, I'd like to ask you to reflect and imagine in this room how many different weather systems, experiences of body and mind, have just passed through this collection of beings here. Just imagine. Some of the ones I've logged through interviews, anxious, restless, sleepy, calm, happy, sleepy, sad, pleasant, sleepy, unpleasant, sleepy, sleepy, judging, judging, sleepy, sleepy, shame, relax, sleepy, sleepy, spacey. Uh, That was just a few. (laughs) When we speak of healing, we're not really speaking so much of Any particular kind of weather of getting rid of the restlessness or getting rid of the sleepy, our abiding in perpetual (sighs) calm and bliss. What we're really talking about, Carl Jung said quite beautifully, he described it as a shift in paradigm where in kind of early days of spiritual practice the idea was to become more perfect. And the shift, the maturing in paradigms, is really one of not going up some hierarchy of becoming more pure, but really just becoming more whole, becoming more real, becoming more fully who we already are. Now, there's this expression in Tibetan Buddhism, some of you might know, that I think is really quite good, which is that the poison is the medicine. And uh, the idea being that any of the difficulties, and not just difficulties, any of the intensities, the kind of elemental life experiences that move through us, that challenge us, because they do challenge us, are kind of like the heat, the pressure, the intensity that really creates our diamond nature, that really brings out our essential diamond nature. So this is an understanding that runs through almost all the wisdom traditions that I know. This one that really says that as we awaken through the difficulties and the intensities, we wake up to who we are. We become more who we are. That suffering really is the gateway to compassion. Joanna Macy describes it that the heart that can break open can contain the whole universe. So we resist this heartbreaking. We try to hold it together and push off what's difficult and intense, but when we finally, usually because we're backed up against the wall, give in, let let in, let be, we really break open to be able to embrace and love all of life. In Tibet, Mm -hmm. there's a premium around good meditation caves. You know, in Japan, it's high-rise apartments, and different places have their things they value as a culture. In Tibet, it's getting a good cave to meditate in. And um, there's a story that one of my teachers, um, Sokni Rinpoche, described how a meditator had a wonderful cave in Tibet. He had a great one. It was sunny, and it was bright, and it was airy. you know, high-quality cave. <laughs> and in it, he experienced a lot of bliss and samadhi. I mean, practice was really going well. And his teacher said, mm, too perfect. And he advised another cave. And this <laughs> his other cave he was like behind a waterfall, and it was really dark, and there were pigeons, and there were ghosts there, according to the story. You know, it was really quite a difficult, damp, dank cave. And it ruined his samadhi totally. I mean, it ruined it. But he came out of it, you know, years later, awake, compassionate, free. So the story goes. Contemporary version is Woody Allen. If my film makes one more person feel miserable, I feel I've done my job. (laughs) Now, as we know here, we don't have to seek out the difficulties. We, we just don't. Most of us don't have this problem of ongoing nonstop perfection in terms of circumstances. Life keeps on providing what we need. And what we also know is that being miserable and encountering difficulties doesn't necessarily uh, translate into waking up. It takes some skill and some presence. Some qualities of awareness. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, which is what are the qualities of awareness that can take the naturally occurring, challenging stuff and allow it to be the medicine that heals. First place to look is how does it happen that what we encounter turns into suffering? How does the restlessness or the lower back pain or the sleepiness, end up locking in and being, being suffering. And what most of you realize and are discovering is that the kind of key thing is we start with this basic experience, sensations in the body, thoughts and so on, and then we start adding on this bottom-line judgment, something's wrong with this. I want it different. I want less than something or more than something. And as soon as we've added on, it's called proliferation, We're on the path of suffering. In the classic literature, it says that the great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. (laughs) Anyone here? (laughs) And in a more specific way, what's relevant to us is that the more intensely charged our preferences are, the more suffering there is. And that becomes really clear. We can be here, and the more we are attached to things being a certain way, the more we really want to have that cup of coffee, or the room all to ourselves, or this room all to ourselves, which is a little harder, more food, whatever it is that we're really holding on to, if there's a lot of wanting, a lot of clinging, there's a lot of suffering. There's different ways that this wanting mind and this suffering arise, and we see them here, just more of something, or have to have, not enough. Another story this same teacher told, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, which I thought was great, described this rodent, a marmot in Tibet, and it's this big rodent that catches mice, and it stands outside the mice, or sits outside the mice hole, and when a mouse comes, it somehow or other grabs it and it stuffs it under its bum and it sits on it. (laughs) And then, because it wants more, it kind of leans forward and gets another one and stuffs it under it. (laughs) And it keeps doing that, but the problem is that it never feels like enough, (coughs) so it's always going for more. So finally, there's no more mice that come out of the hole, so it leans way, way forward and they all run away. (laughs) You know, so much for the evolutionary potential of the marmot, right? <laughs> so we have this feeling of not enough and always kind of having to lean forward for something more. And that's pretty chronic for many of us. Sometimes we're not just, we're collecting experience, pleasant experiences and there's that feeling of not enough. And other times it's really quite subtle. And I think this is the one, the description I like best by Basho. Though I'm in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto." Do you understand? It's a sense of it can be really beautiful. I felt it this spring a few times. It was really beautiful. And there was something in me that had to have more presence in that beauty. I wasn't quite living it fully enough. There was some longing or some sadness that it wasn't quite sinking in. So on the retreat, there can be this awareness that we're never quite arriving, we're waiting for the next good meditation, or for the next lunch or supper, or we're waiting for walking period or for the retreat to end, (laughs) or whatever it is, or for the next time that we can do a longer retreat. There's a quality of waiting for real life to happen and never getting there, never arriving. In one cartoon that I saw, it had a picture of a family and they were on camels, the parents on one, the kids on another, all their belongings on the third. And the father saying to the kids, Will you stop asking if we're almost there? We're nomads for crying out loud. (laughs) Tough position to be in, isn't it? <laughs> so in a way we are all nomads. I mean we're all just kind of moving around through life and if we think we're trying to get to some place, we're not here. We're not here, we're not now. So there's this subtle chronic wanting and then there can be the suffering of real full-blown addiction which many of us know firsthand and definitely secondhand the addiction when we just have to have Not okay unless we have what we need and we have to have it and the fix that we get is always temporary. And then around our addictions, and this is even more of the duke of it, is such shame that we cover up. We have to pretend. It's very hard to let other people see how attached we are to some substance or to some person, so we cover up. When Mark Twain was an impoverished young reporter in Virginia City. He was walking along the street one day with a cigar box under his arm. He encountered a wealthy lady he knew who said to him reproachfully, you promised me that you would give up smoking. Madame, replied Twain, this box does not contain cigars. I'm just moving. I don't know if that was the best example of the point, but I thought it was kind of (laughs) cute. We suffer when we're caught in wanting mind, and then we suffer when we're caught in not wanting mind, the mind that does not want what is, that wants to get away with how it is, get away from unpleasantness, that wants the schedule to be different, that blames something. It's either blaming us, I'm not good enough at retreat to do this right, or the teachers aren't good enough, or the schedule's not right, or the weather's not... You know, that whole sense of unpleasantness is experienced, and then the first response of resistance, of defending, is to blame something. So when there's this big not okay, not okay with how it is, not enough, don't like what's unpleasant, there can be a very beautiful and transformative unfolding when we recognize it, that it's happening. And I want to describe just the overview of that transforming, and then we'll go into it a little bit. The first step, and it's kind of a sequence when we look closely. It's not a rigid, fixed one, but it is a sequence. The first step, and I'll give an example. Let's say it's anxiety that's going on in us, because so many of us came here nervous. It's really natural. It happens at every retreat. We're nervous to face ourselves. We're nervous to be with others like this. Whatever our um, idea of what's going to happen, it gets us a little nervous. So there's anxiety. And then what's the first thing? The first thing is to deny it as long as you can, to kind of not look at it, to keep busy, to pay attention to other things. If we're carrying around anxiety here, once we get into the retreat, it's to stay kind of preoccupied, busy in our minds. The second phase is it starts seeping through. So we try to control and manage and compromise around it. Well, I'll pay attention to this anxiety if it goes away quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, that bargaining mind that you hear so much in Vipassana classes and talks. We tried in some way control it, trying to figure out what caused it and figure out how to get rid of it and just do something about it that will kind of contain. Mm -hmm. Seeps through even more because we are here and our official job is to pay attention. So it kind of comes up more. And then it's experienced in a very embodied way as angry that it's there and judgment about it. Anger, judgment, it's the same thing. Judgment's the mind's concept about it and anger is what the body feels and rejecting it. So we've gone from denial to trying to manage compromise to anger. Then the next phase is we're paying attention so we start actually feeling what's there the loss that we don't want to feel, the wound, the hurt. We actually start opening to what's going on that's underneath that we've been trying to push away. The last phase is, once having felt and open to what's actually there, is acceptance. We've in some way made friends, come to peace with what's actually happening, connection with it. Now, does this sequence sound familiar? You remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's description of when you're facing death, what happens? Denial, compromise, anger, grief, acceptance. The process of facing not okay feelings, unpleasantness, is no different than the process of facing dying. It is a dying. The resistance, which is who we are, has to die each time. Stephen Levine called it healing into life and death. Because there's this sequence that starts with resistance, and the healing that happens happens because we open out of it and touch what's actually there. Robert Frost said that poetry is griefs, not grievances. We all have hurts, but around these we form grievances. That's all the judgments and complaints and ideas and so on. So we wrap up the essential life response to things, the grief, the hurt, the loss, with this whole set of complaints and judgments. And that we suffer if we live in that. If, that, if we keep the bandage on, if we don't let ourselves be with what's there, we suffer. It's called suffering is voluntary because we keep the proliferation. If we touch into the grief, open out of the grievances, then there's the possibility for healing. The grievances that we stay in, the judgments are what keeps us small. They're the ideas that we can't handle it, that we're to blame, that someone else is to blame all the beliefs about who we are that's not enough another cartoon and in this one a man is with a gypsy and then she has a crystal ball and she's saying to him you'll fall for anything and he's thinking uncanny you know <laughs> So the essential process of of transformation is really opening out of the thoughts, out of the blaming, out of the judgment, to touch the vulnerability, to touch what's essentially there, the living reality of what's in our bodies. And the key to it is mindfulness, that we can begin to pay attention with presence in the midst of the struggle, while it's happening. We begin to see how we're clinging, how we're holding on, how we're resisting, the way we use judgment and blame. And in the light of awareness, in the warmth of our heart, the resistance begins to melt. That is the magic of this practice we're doing. As we pay attention, the ways that we hold ourselves separate, make ourselves small, begin to dissolve. Now. The challenge is, and probably many of you have seen this again and again, is that we do melt some, we open, we have that realization of, oh, if I wouldn't fight life so much, I would just have more freedom, and then we recontract and redo the whole scenario again, like that. Um, I have, uh, as an illustration, to tell you about a series of dreams I have that I have had. They've kind of gone away, but it was <coughs> repeating for a while, and the theme was, in each of them, that I'd be on my way to give a talk, to give a Dharma talk, and in some way I'd realize, oh, I've forgotten something really important that I wanted to share—some poem or some idea or something—I just, i would forgotten. And then each time I'd be racing back and scrambling around, really bothered because I couldn't find what I wanted to find. This is very disclosing, you know. <laughs> I would go through them, and then. A couple of years ago, I had a very compelling version, and in that version, and it, w- it was before I was about to give a, a talk at a conference on the West Coast for real, so it came right before that, I was walking towards the conference hall and there was a big swamp on my left, and this wind blew all my notes into the swamp. <laughs> so, so I went in after them, of course, Here I was wearing, I was all dressed, I went into the swamp after them, I was getting muddier and muckier, and then I got this thought, Hey. I could let go, I could just let these be gone. I still have time to get changed, get showered, and show up. And I went, uh uh-uh, and I went into the swamp deeper, got muckier. And this is significant, because I don't like muck. I hate mucky Mm -hmm. bottoms to water and so on. So I woke up from that dream, and it made a real impression. And then again, I had another one pretty soon after, and I was on my way to the Tuesday night class, and realized I had left something behind, so I again went, I can't do it. I turned the car around and I went back and I got caught in huge amount of traffic. And I got that same light bulb. Wait a minute, I could turn around, be out of the traffic. And then I rem- and then I in my dream remembered all the other dreams. All the times that I had not let go and gone deeper into the muck. And I turned the car around and got out of the traffic and I don't know what I said in class or did, but it didn't matter. I think that this happens to all of us all the time, that we keep having to relearn to let go. And we get motivated. I was motivated because I hated traffic, you know, more than I hated showing up without notes, I think. But we have motivation because it makes us more free. It doesn't change that we keep on reconstructing ourselves, reclinging, re-resisting. What does change over time is that the lag time is less. We catch on and let go in a shorter amount of time. Doesn't that seem so? Decreasing the lag time is really saying that we become more and more inclined to agree with our life, to say yes to what's happening, more quickly. We still have the reflex to say no. You know, when it's unpleasant, we still tense against it. But more and more quickly we soften the armor. We soften again. We meet our edge, we soften. It just happens more and more quickly. This is Clarissa Estes. In fairy tale justice, as in the deep psyche, kindness to that which seems less is rewarded by good. And refusal to do good for one who is not beautiful is reviled and punished. It is the same in the great feeling state such as love. When we enlarge ourselves to touch the not-beautiful, we are rewarded. If we spurn the not-beautiful, we are severed from life and left out in the cold. So enlarging ourselves to touch the not-beautiful with awareness, enlarging ourselves to make room for the aches and the pains, to see the judgments but not live inside them, to watch our plans to either leave retreat early, to watch our ways of trying to hold off from anxiety, to stay busy in our minds, and just to enlarge ourselves so there's room to watch with kindness. There are two qualities in training ourselves and cultivating mindfulness that are really key in this. One of them I've been mentioning a lot. It's to recognize the thought. It's really pretty central in every meditation training path I know, to start recognizing the thinking. If we recognize it, we're not caught inside it. If we're inside a thought contraction, what we're doing is identifying with only a tiny fragment of our being. We're small, it's suffering. That's one, to recognize thinking. The second is For healing to happen, we have to feel what's happening in our body. Every wound that we've ever experienced has at least part of its manifestation through our physical body. So the healing of those wounds means to feel in our bodies what's asking for attention. This is Joko Beck. She says, we have to face the pain we have been running from, the fear, the grief, the wounds. We need to learn to rest in it and let its searing power transform us. When we truly rest in bodily sensations, there's a resonance. When we really drop our resistance, there's a sense of becoming connected with the essence of who we are. And it becomes spacious. When we really drop the resistance, it becomes spacious. Our hearts naturally open. About five years ago, I read a description of our resistance to difficulty by Herbert Benoit, who's a French psychiatrist, and he was in a very bad car accident, disabled for years, so he spent his time just thinking about the human condition and suffering. He writes that, under our thoughts, under the internal dialogue, which he calls the imaginary film, contraction and pain is held like a hard icy couch, immobile and cold when we lie down on this couch, with presence, we begin to heal. It's as though we tranquilly stretched out our body on a hard but friendly rock that was exactly molded to our form. Now, there are different metaphors that work for different people about experiencing fully what's true. But after I read that, again and again, whenever anything was difficult, when I'd feel fear or pain of any sort, I'd imagine it like a hard icy couch and just imagine my whole being could lie down in it. And I still use that at many junctures as a very freeing way to kind of say yes and let go of resistance. There are many other ways, there are many other metaphors of forgiving, letting go into melting resistance with our hearts the universal qualities of mindfulness that heal can be seen in terms of certain archetypes and sometimes uh, sensing them as archetypes can be really helpful because we don't own them personally but they're naturally part of our nature and the first archetype is been described as the king or queen and that each of us has this archetype of the king or queen that sits in the midst of all experience and really offers the blessing of presence that pays attention that has an awareness that includes all of the domain all of the kingdom and for a moment if you will just close your eyes i'm just going to invite you to check in on each of these Reflecting on this quality of mindfulness of the king-queen that's within, which is really the awareness that's inclusive and respectful, attentive to whatever's arising. You might reflect on right this moment, if there's anything strongly pleasant or unpleasant. sensing the presence of this archetypal king, queen that says yes, that can say yes to what is and be with in a full, open, clear way. We each have this quality of awareness that blesses, respects, and honors what's arising. We don't always have access to it. We sometimes flinch away from it. But it's our capacity. So that's the first of the universal archetypes, the king-queen, which represents mindfulness. The second is the archetype of the spiritual warrior. And the spiritual warrior really embodies qualities of being intentional, being alert, being committed, being courageous. The spiritual warrior serves mindfulness, energizes mindfulness out of this commitment, out of remembering the aspiration which really is key to being. With the spiritual warrior, there's the courage and the will to be real. The spiritual warrior is what brings us here, what brings us to practice, what helps us to stretch, to open, to be with what's true. This is a story about a 15-year-old Hispanic boy from Los Angeles. His name was Juan, and he grew up in a violent neighborhood, was a gang member since very young. And he was very, very smart and very, very mean. It said his world was so rough that acting like the baddest and the meanest was the only way he saw to survive. So he was sent by his mom and others that cared and wanted to see if he could kind of get away from his upbringing and moved towards getting an education. He was sent to Boulder, Colorado, one summer and stayed with people that were loosely involved with the Shambhala Buddhist Center there in Colorado. And one day he went to an event that Chogyam Trungpa was at, who was the teacher of that community, has passed away since then. And at that event, uh, Trungpa sang the Shambhala National Anthem and he sang it and it went over the microphones and so it, you know, was broadcast for a large, large area and it was said that when he sang the anthem, it was an awful experience for the rest of us because for some reason he loved to sing the Shambhala Anthem in a high-pitched, squeaky and cracked voice. <laughs> So there he was singing into the microphone and the sounds traveling for miles across the plains and juan broke down and started to cry now all the other folks were kind of just embarrassed because or awkward because of the sound of it but he started to cry and later he said he cried because he had never seen anyone that brave that guy he's not afraid to be a fool That turned out to be a major turning point in his life, because he realized he didn't have to be afraid to be a fool either, and that all that persona and chip on his shoulder were guarding his soft spot, guarding vulnerability, and he could let it go. And because he was a bright guy, he got the message, and it really turned him around. Um, He's now He finished his education, now he's in L.A. helping other young kids. the spiritual warrior. thats the place in us that has the courage to be real, to show up, to really be with this life. So again, to take a moment to reflect, to close your eyes. Sensing that part of your being that really does know your intention, your aspiration, the part of you that energizes you towards parts of the path that most heal, most awaken, the part of you that remembers, the part of you that's committed to living wholeheartedly, compassionately, that's willing to sacrifice for the truth to stand up for the truth, to be real. This is the spiritual warrior. Now the third of the archetypes that I'll mention tonight is really the archetype of the lover. That for the king-queen, for mindfulness to really be present, to say yes with heart, takes the lover. For mindfulness to really embrace to care, takes the lover. There isn't room for this life. There's nothing spacious enough unless it's loving kindness, unless it's love. So the archetype of the lover is the energy that longs to belong and uh, underneath that, into its connectedness, manifests connectedness. It's expressed in kindness and in compassion, in moments of caring. The Lover, like each of the other archetypes, is both innate and can be cultivated and is cultivated through our practices. It naturally arises when we sense vulnerability within us, around us, when we see beauty. Just today in interviews, the uh, I remember sitting in one circle and that Lover archetype emerged with one person when she reflected on experience with nature today really opening to beauty and another when she sensed the depth of her longing what her aspiration really was when we really connect with what's true the lover archetype naturally arises for many of us though it gets pretty locked away and it's hard to access sometimes That's why it's why so many of the retreats and classes one of our practices is simply in the meta to put our hands on our own hearts. You know that one. Because it's so rare. It's so rare that we feel tender towards our own being, are tender towards life. Sometimes it happens with a child. It's one of the most beautiful pathways back to our heart is because children can be innocent, that we're not so defended, can bring it up. So part of our practice is getting tender Getting tender with ourselves and each other and the earth. Take a moment again, if you will, to close your eyes and let's sense this archetype. And in doing so, with each of these, just to say sometimes we can't sense them, and that's fine to realize that we're not having access and to be quite forgiving and patient about it. The lover archetype, which is the place of caring, and take a moment to... See where the vulnerability has been for yourself in this last day. Where it's been difficult. Where you felt inside some woundedness or fear. And to sense, whether it's physically or just with your heart, what it's like to touch yourself with tenderness. To touch that place of hurt to offer care, to offer the message that you care about the suffering. You're willing to be with this vulnerability. This is the lover within all of us. Coming back if you'd like. When these archetypal qualities are present our intentionality, that courage of the warrior, the mindfulness, the presence of the king, queen, the care of the lover, when they're there, healing is experienced in all domains, in all domains. In our body, we develop a sensitivity to contractions, to relaxing, when when, when we're at ease, when we're tight. The very nature of attention frees energy up to move. So then there can be great varieties of release, of spontaneous vibration and opening. We really can discover our natural rhythm, sense the needs of our body and be able to respond. So there's openings in those ways of really reclaiming our feelings, our intuition, our instinct, our life, really honoring embodiment when we heal in the body, we're able to enjoy the sensations of aliveness. That's really nice. We see at retreat sometimes that part of healing in the body really means the awakening of our senses in a very vivid way. Eyes, the tongue, the ears, get really touch. Everything's rejuvenated, so colors become more pure and taste fresh. You can sense the aliveness there we come alive. Now similarly, when these qualities of awareness are there, there's healing in the heart, healing in an emotional way. We become more whole. We become more real. We become more able to care about ourselves and the beings around us. There can be a quality of real peace. And it's not the well-being that comes from feeling like, ah, good, I'm in a, a just a, place of um, happiness for this or pride about this but the quality of well-being when we see that we can be with whatever waves arise in our being that deep kind of confidence when we open to the life within we can be open to the life within other beings, there's a natural compassion Pema Chodron writes when you've opened to the sea of grief pain, hurt, loss, you can look right into somebody's eyes because you feel you haven't got anything to lose. You're just there. We sometimes know that feeling when we've been that real with ourselves, we can afford to, nothing to lose. When we open to losses, we also open to this very deep cherishing of life, a real cherishing of the love and the life that's around us and a natural generosity. I'd like to read to you a story that um, I thought was quite beautiful called The Flower. For some time, I've had a person provide me with a rose button to to pin on the lapel of my suit every Sunday. Because I always got a flower on Sunday morning, I really did not think much of it It was a nice gesture and I appreciated it, but it became routine. One Sunday, however, what I considered ordinary became very special. As I was leaving the Sunday services, a young man approached me. He walked right up to me and said, Sir, what are you going to do with your flower? At first I did not know what he was talking about, but then I understood. You mean this as I pointed to the rose pinned to my coat? Yes, sir, he said. I would like it if you're just going to throw it away. At this point, I smiled and gladly told him he could have my flower, casually asking him what he was going to do with it. The little boy, who was probably less than 10 years old, looked up at me and said, Sir, I'm going to give it to my granny. My mother and father got divorced last year. I was living with my mother, but when she married again, she wanted me to live with my father. I lived with him for a while, but he said I could not stay, so he sent me to live with my grandmother she is so good to me she cooks for me and takes care of me she's been so good to me that i want to give her that pretty flower to her for loving me when the little boy finished i could hardly speak my eyes filled with tears and i knew i had been touched in the depths of my soul i reached up and unpinned my flower with the flower in my hand i looked at the boy and said son that is the nicest thing i've ever heard but you can't have this flower because it's not enough If you'll look in front of the pulpit, you'll see a big bouquet of flowers. Different families buy them for the church each week. Please take those flowers to your granny because she deserves the very best. If I hadn't been touched enough already, he made one last statement, and I will always cherish it. He said, What a wonderful day. I asked for one flower but got a beautiful bouquet. So healing in the body, healing, the emotions, the heart, careful, wakeful attention also brings a profound and freeing healing to the mind. We can see the root of suffering in staying lost in this imaginary film, staying lost in our thoughts that compare and judge and keep us small. If we're in thinking mind, we're disconnected from the heart, from the whole. So with clear seeing, we can allow for the stories, allow for the judgments. We're not pushing away anything, fantasies, whatever, without believing them. With clear seeing, we can experience our original nature because our identity is not hooked to the thinking mind. Reconnecting with our natural expansiveness and compassion and wisdom. Now, the last aspect I'd like to mention of what gets healed has really been described in terms of awareness of universal laws. That when we cultivate these qualities of wakefulness, when we practice presence and love, we really see clearly the empty nature of experience. When we're fully here, when we're fully wakeful, what we see is that there's no self all this stuff is happening to. There's no self-causing all this stuff. It's truly a changing flow of experience. That's the reality we perceive. And what it does is it allows us to honor and experience fully this changing precious stream of life as it really is. Not trying to hold on, not trying to resist. In any moment of true mindfulness, and care, where we're here, where we're present, where we're caring, is a moment that heals us into natural being. In any moment that we make peace with of ourselves, that we see our judging, our blaming, and don't believe it so much, when we're not resisting, is a moment that reconnects us with our Buddha nature, with our naturally wakeful heart, with our naturally wise mind i would like to stop with that and invite us one last time to come sitting up and do just a very brief meditation. Letting yourself get still, feeling the breath in the body in a relaxed way so that the awareness is open, soft, clear. Sensing your natural qualities of awareness. Cognizance, knowing, knowing what's true an open quality to awareness, a willingness to touch what's true, a care about this life. Resting in awareness, receiving what arises with clarity, with care, with presence.